Our scripture reading today comes from Colossians 3. Um, You can find it on page 11 of your booklet or projected behind me above. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Rebecca. Okay, uh, children, I mentioned the Trinity Kids Bulletin earlier. You can grab that now, and there's a spot on there to jot down three things to listen for that I'm going to mention during the sermon. Here they are. Uh, One is a label maker. Uh, Secondly, taxes. And then thirdly, stinking thinking. Okay? Label maker, taxes, stinking thinking. So with that, let uh, let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we take comfort in the promise that you make that when your word is proclaimed among your people, it will not return void, but it will accomplish what you intend. And so, Father, that is what we ask for today, that your word would do its work in our hearts by the work of your spirit. And we pray that above all, uh, we might see Jesus in all of his beauty, and all of his risen glory. We pray it all in his name. Amen. Um, one of my uh, all-time favorite characters from The Office, and there are a lot, uh, is uh, Andy Bernard. And uh, what's interesting about, the, uh, about Andy is that, um, Andy, my, my buddy Andy, um, is that, as you could call it first name basis, um, is that his character uh, went through what was a pretty significant transformation in the early days of, of the episodes of The Office. So he began, if you remember, as this very high-strung, achieving, uh, conniving kiss-up who couldn't stop talking about his alma mater, Cornell, right? Um, and, and initially, if you remember, he had a terrible temper. And so uh, in one episode, uh, his coworker Jim stole his cell phone, and then he put it above, uh, above Andy's workplace through the ceiling tiles above him. And then he called his cell phone over and over again throughout the day. And so Andy uh, doesn't know where his cell phone is, but he hears it ringing and he can't find it. And he gets angrier and he gets angrier until finally, and then he punches a hole through the wall in the office, right? And so you find out then that he he gets sent to Dunder Mifflin's six-week anger management program. So he goes to do that and you don't see him again for the rest of that season. He's gone. Uh, He comes back the following season, and when he does, he is a different person. He's one who, uh, he still loves Cornell, for sure. He's still pretty obnoxious, but he's not angry anymore. His whole whole, uh, uh, character is now more mild-mannered. His temper's gone. The edge has kind of been taken off the kind of character that he was previously. And all it took was that six-week anger management program, right? So uh, you, you see that and you think a couple of things. One, maybe they shouldn't have done that because the original Andy was funnier in some ways. But the other thing that you, you think is that we wish that change came that easily. Like it, it, it really would be incredible 
if all it took to deal with the anger in my heart was to go to this six-week program, right? And then all of a sudden, there's this deep change that, that, that has been accomplished in my own heart. Problem is, we know that that's not how it works. And I think part of what that does is that it illustrates a perspective, an incorrect perspective that we could have on change, and it's this. If we just tweak some of our actions, some of our behaviors, life hack a few things, then real change is going to come. And of course, we know that that doesn't work. And so we might even say that that's a pretty naively optimistic view about the kind of change that we really need. That's one view. But here's the deal. I I would guess that almost none of us in here fall in, in that direction or lean in that direction. I would say far more of us fall in this other direction, which is to view change in a cynical, pessimistic sort of way, where we don't really have any hope that real change could happen in a person. And the deal is is that it's pretty easy to get to that place, especially if you've lived for any amount of time, right? Maybe you start to get older and you see people in your family, you see people that you've known for a long time, and you see them in the same patterns and sometimes destructive patterns that they have always been in. And and, and the thing is is that you don't have to look outside to other people to see and be skeptical about change because you know your own heart as well. So that every one of us in here has that sin or that set of sins that that, that feels so deep-rooted within you that you almost want to say that it's just a part of you, that it's probably not going anywhere And so I'm at a point where what I need to do is just make peace with this sort of sin. And I'm thinking about things like your anger, or our sexuality, or our lust, or even sort of the the comparison and the pride that comes so automatically that it just feels like your default setting. And, And whatever it is for you, it is that thing that you are just tired of at this point. You're tired of confessing it, You're tired of fighting it. You're tired of talking about it. And again, if you're honest, you don't really have any realistic hope or expectation that's going to change. Now, here's the deal. Neither of those perspectives is an accurate reflection of what the Bible says about true change. The Bible doesn't have this sort of naively optimistic view, but neither does it have the, the, this sort of cynically or this cynical pessimistic view either. Now, why not? Well, because the Bible's view of change is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. And that's actually where Paul goes in Colossians 3. And so what we're going to do uh, for the next couple of weeks is look some at what the New Testament says about change in the Christian life. And so just a little reminder of where we are. We took a break last week for Easter, but we left off two weeks ago in chapter two, at the end of chapter two. And what Paul had done in chapter two is he had finally begun talking specifically about what the nature of this false teaching in Colossae really was. And so the, the, the false teaching revolved around this, this question. Is Jesus enough specifically for real spiritual growth? Is he enough? Or do we need to add other things to him? Are there sorts of uh, practices that we need to adopt in order to, uh, to really grow in the Christian life? And what he does at the end of chapter two is talk about the appeal of those things, but he also talks about the worthlessness of them. And so he says this in chapter two, verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom 
and promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So here's the question. If these things are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, then what is of value? Paul's answer to that question is Jesus himself. And more specifically to us, it's the new identity that you have in union with Jesus. And so here's what I want us to see today. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, because of Easter, real change is possible. So two points uh, from this passage. The first is this, why change is possible. And then secondly, how change is possible. So first, why change is possible? Here's Paul's answer. Change is possible because you have been united to Jesus in his death and resurrection. So verse one, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. And so if you notice what Paul's assumption is, is that you have been, past tense, raised with Christ. And actually it could be translated as since you have been raised with Christ. Here's the thing. If you stop for a moment and think about this and try to set aside some of the, uh, the, the familiarity you might have with biblical language, this sounds really weird, right? In what sense could Paul talk about Christians having been raised with Christ? This event that has taken place in the past that obviously we were not there for in any meaningful way, and yet now he's saying, you have been raised with Christ. Okay, so what, what, what does he mean by that? Well, the reason that he can say that is that when a person believes the gospel, and when you, when you put your faith in Christ, you are united to him. And so this is what's called union with Christ. And what happens is you enter into this very close, very intimate relationship with him. And, and part of what that means is that you become so identified with him that what is true of Jesus is now true of you. So here's what that means. Christ died to sin, so you have died to sin. Christ was raised from the dead, you now have been raised from the dead. What is true of Jesus is now true of you, such that his life is your life. And so Paul can say things like this in 2 Corinthians 5. You are now a new creation. You are a new person. You have a new identity because you have been united to Jesus in his death and resurrection by faith. And so here's what he says then in verse 3. He says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And he goes on to say this in verse four, that Christ is now your life. So it is not, not, not just your salvation that Paul's talking about here. He is talking about the whole of your life. What is true of Christ is true of you. So here's the question. Why is that so important when we start thinking about how change really works? Well, two reasons. One is this. It's important because it means that with Christ, you have died to sin. And that's what Paul says in verse three. He says, you have died. What does that mean? Well, I, I, here's the thing. I, I think our default when it comes to how we think about what Jesus accomplished on the cross is to think in terms of forgiveness. And so we think Christ died in order to forgive the penalty of my sin. And here's the thing. That is gloriously true. That is part of the, the, the heart of the good news of what Jesus has accomplished, that you are forgiven for your sins in him. But here's the thing. That's not all he accomplished. 
He also, Paul says, broke the power of sin over you. And so this is what Paul says in Romans 6. This was our assurance of pardon. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that, and listen to this, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. See, Paul is saying in Romans 6 and in Colossians 3 that there was a time when sin was your master, when sin exercised this dominion over you, when you were enslaved to it, you were under its power. It was a time when sin would have its way with you and you couldn't do anything about it. When it, when it held you captive, you might change your behavior in, a, in little bits here and there, but ultimately you were enslaved to sin. He's saying that's changed. But now you have died to sin. And he says that because of that death, it is no longer now your master. So what does that mean practically? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that you do not have to struggle with sin in your life. Nor does it mean that, that, that the sin in your life is not going to fight back anymore. But here's what it does mean. It means that the kind of fighting that the sin in your life is going to do now is more of a guerrilla style of war. See, at one time, that enemy ruled as a tyrant over you. It did what it wanted at any time and in any way. But now, what Paul is saying is that you died with Christ. And because that occurred in that moment, that tyrant in your life got toppled. That tyrant is no longer on the throne. And so now, those enemy troops still exist. They are still fighting. But they're not running things anymore like they used to. With Christ, you have died to sin so that it is no longer your master. That's the first thing. Here's the second reason that union with Christ is so important. It's important because it means that with Christ, you have been raised to new life. So not only did you die with Christ, you also were raised with him. Not only did you share in his death, you also shared in his resurrection. And this is what Paul says in chapter 2. He says this in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Okay, so what does that mean? couple of things. It means first that you now have a new identity. It means that you are not who you once were. In the words of this first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism that we say so often, you are not your own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And that means that everything has changed. Because what now most fundamentally defines you and what is most fundamentally true of you is that you are one who is united to Christ if you've put your faith in him. You are dead to sin and alive to God. And that identity is more important, it's more fundamental, and, fundamental, and, and hear this, it is more determinative of your life now than any other identity. This is who you really are. It is who you really belong to. 
So some of my, uh, my favorite memories, memories of uh, Jeanette's stepdad who passed away in 2018 uh, basically all involve him doing things that you might see on the progressive insurance commercials on how to not become like your parents. That was sort of the way he lived his life and it was a wonderful thing. Um, so one year he got a label maker for Christmas. Tells you everything, right? Um, and so Jeanette and I at one point had dropped Jack there uh, for, at their house for a week while we were heading out of town. And so what Mike had done is he took the week off of work and basically what he did that week is label everything in the house. And so when we returned a week later, um, we come back into the house and I pick up the cordless phone and on the back it says kitchen. You go to the living room and you pick up the, the remote control and it says living room on the back. And it was like that in everything in the house. It was all labeled. So here's the deal. When you believe the gospel, what Paul says is that in that moment, you have a new label that is placed on you. And that label says, risen with Christ. And the great thing about that label is that it goes so far deeper than just some surface level naming of you. It says something about who you really are now in union with Jesus. You have a new identity in him. That's one thing that this means, but it also means that you have a new power. And that, that, that now you are, according to Paul, alive with Christ. And so what Paul says in Ephesians 1, and Ephesians is a, a very similar letter to the letter to the Colossians. He says there in Ephesians 1, that you have the power that raised Christ from the dead at work in you right now by the Holy Spirit. That very same power is at work in your life. And here's part of why that's so important. It's not as though what Paul is asking you to do is sort of pretend like you're somebody that you're really not. He's not telling you that you need to, to try to act like you're somebody different and to, to sort of pretend that, that, oh, you really are raised with Christ when in fact nothing substantial has changed with you at all. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that you actually have resurrection power at work in your life right now by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so here's the real question. If all of that is true, and it is, then why is it that we don't see greater fruit of that in our own lives? Why is it that, 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 uh, that change comes so difficult, difficultly for us? And, and here's the thing. There are a whole lot of really important reasons, I think, why that is the case. But there is one basic reason that is beneath all of the others, and it's this. It's that we really don't believe that that's true. And because we don't believe that that's true, we don't live as though that's true. We don't live as though we are really united with Christ. And because we don't believe that that's, that, that, that we really do have a new identity in him. And I think there are a lot of reasons that, that we struggle to believe that that's true. One is something that Paul says in this passage. He says that, that it is actually hard to see and to believe that you have this new identity. That's actually part of what he's getting at when he says in verse 3 that your life is hidden with Christ in God. So at least part of what he's saying here, he's saying in, in part, in part that, that this life is protected by God, but it's also the case that your true identity is veiled in certain ways. That there is still some mystery to this, that it's not abundantly clear to you right now that this is who you are. 
But there is coming a day when who you really are and who you really will be is gonna be fully revealed when Christ appears, he says. So that's one reason that this is hard. A second reason, though, that it's hard to believe that we have this new identity and this new power is that it is so easy to mistake a lost battle for a lost war. Let me say that again. It is so easy for us to mistake a lost battle for a lost war. And so here's what I mean by that. Let's imagine that you are really fighting a particular sin in your life, and it is that sin or that set of sins that feels really deeply rooted in you. You are fighting and you are fighting and you fall and you fail. And so the temptation in that moment is to think that because you have fallen, it must now mean that you are still enslaved to this sin. That the power of sin in your life has not really been broken because look what just happened. What Paul is saying is that no, that is not true. All that has occurred in that moment is that you have fallen in that one particular battle. And he's never said that the struggle is going to go away. In fact, he says that the struggle is going to get turned up a few notches. The struggle is there, but the slavery is not. But here's what can happen that we really need to be careful about. And it's that if you believe that because you have fallen in this one instance, that you are now powerless against sin, then you're going to begin living that way. You're going to continue to think, I am enslaved to this sin, and your behavior is going to follow from that. You're going to live as though you are a slave, even though you have been set free. And so what Paul says is that that is not who you are. You have been united to Jesus in his death and resurrection. And so what he calls us to is to live in light of that reality, to live out that reality in our lives. That leads us then to the second point. How is change possible? Well, according to Paul, we change by remembering who we really are in Christ and living as who we really are in Christ. What Paul wants us to do is to remember our identity in Christ and to live in light of that identity. Why does he say that? He says that because our identity determines and shapes the way we live our life. Here's what I mean. The, the way that you understand who you are is gonna shape the way that you live. So uh, one example of this, this is an example that my pastor in Indiana had used once, and it fits really well this week, and here's why. Most of you, hopefully all of you um, who should have done this, paid your taxes on Monday, right? Uh, maybe you did it before, that'd be great. Um, but the, the, the reason you did that is because you are an American citizen. And, and part of what it means to be an American citizen is to pay your taxes. So if you are, are not an American citizen, you didn't do that, Right? So your identity in that regard shapes the way that you live your life and it shapes the things that you do. What Paul is saying is that you are to live as one who has been set free from sin because that is who you really are now. To live as one who has been made alive together with Christ because that's who you really are now. To live as one who has this new resurrection power at work in you because it really is at work in you. Don't forget who you really are. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way. He says, remember who you are in Christ and let that knowledge do its powerful work throughout your lives. 
How do we do this practically? Paul mentions a couple things in here that we'll look at this week. The rest of the chapter is some, is some more practical stuff that we'll look at next week. But he says a couple of things that, that, that mean essentially the same thing in this passage. If you look at verse 1, he says, Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And then in verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Okay, what does he mean by this? Let me... Uh, start here because these verses can be really uh, easily misunderstood. What he is not saying is that you need to not think about the things of this world, this physical world around us, and to instead only think about those things that we conceive of as spiritual, right? He's not saying that the everyday things that you do and the, the, the ways that we live our lives don't matter and that all we should ever do is think about heaven. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that if you have a relationship with Jesus, then you are a part of a new kingdom. And that kingdom is the kingdom of God where Jesus reigns, he says, at the right hand of the Father. If you have put your faith in Jesus, then you are a citizen of that kingdom. And that king is now the source of your life. He is the source of your life and the source of your growth. And so what Paul is saying is to set your mind on that kingdom and set your mind there because that is where your king is. Seek him, pursue him, cultivate a desire for him. And so practically what he's gonna go on to say is that what it means is that we should put off these old ways of living that belong to our old way of life and to now put on the, 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 these new ways of living that, that are who we really are in Jesus. We're gonna look at that next week. But, but the other thing that this means is that setting your mind on, it means that setting your mind on who you are in Christ. It's remembering who and whose you are. And of course, this is a place that, that's incredibly difficult for us. It can be so hard because it can be much easier to let that sin tell you who you really are. And so the temptation then is to, is to think, who I am most fundamentally is an angry person. So one of, the, uh, one of the great terms from AA and other recovery communities is the term stinking thinking. You might not have heard that before, um, but what it refers to are, are these, uh, these destructive patterns of thinking that we are tempted uh, to go back to and that would lead us down the road towards our addiction. And so the, the, the stinking thinking in this instance is to believe and to think of and conceive of yourself as one who has not died with Christ. To conceive of yourself and to think of your identity as one who has not been raised with Jesus. And Paul is saying, do not do that. Don't believe the lie that you are still enslaved to sin. Don't believe the lie that the resurrection doesn't have any impact on your fight against sin right now. Do not believe that. Set your minds instead on your Savior. Set your minds instead on your risen Lord who has set you free. So we're going to look more at, at, at what this means uh, next week in a practical way. Let me close with this. Uh, because I think this is a, a big hesitation that we might have about all this. And it's this. This change will not happen immediately. There's a sense in which it is really easy to say some of what I have just said, but it, it does not translate into this, this sort of easy, smooth battle in our lives. It is, it's incredibly difficult. But here's the promise of this passage. That change will happen. 
This is what Paul says in verse four. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He's saying that there will come a day when God's image will be fully remade remade in you. A day when you will be completely whole. A day when the very presence of sin will be gone from your life. Here's what you need to see now though. That renewal has begun. That renewal has begun right now because of the resurrection of Jesus. And so what Easter means is that you can be hopeful about change in your life. Easter means that that sin no longer has dominion over you. Easter means that you have been raised with Jesus. And that is what he offers you, real life in him. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this good news of the resurrection of your son. Lord, we confess that it is difficult for us to really believe and to live out of this new identity of having been crucified with Christ and raised with him. And so, Father, I pray that by your spirit, you would enable us to believe that more and more, that you would enable us to live in light of that new identity and that we would experience this new power that really is at work in us by your Holy Spirit. We pray this all for your glory and for our good. Amen.